This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Intel. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Heather Long, an economics correspondent at The Post, and I'm excited that we are talking about one of my favorite subjects, the future of work today. Uh, obviously, how we work and what employees want from employers has changed dramatically in the past two years. Later on the program, we'll be talking with Heather Boucher from the White House about the Biden administration's take on all of this and where it's going. But to kick off our conversation, I'm excited to welcome Jared Spataro, the vice president, uh, corporate vice president of modern work at Microsoft. Welcome, Jared, to Post Live. Heather, thanks for having me. Great to be here with you. So I know you've been thinking so much about the future of work. And to kick it off, I, I want to ask about Microsoft's decision. Uh, I know your company was thinking about, like many companies, bringing workers back to the headquarters there in Washington State in October. And instead, you made a pretty dramatic decision to suspend that indefinitely and basically move to a more hybrid work model. Give us some insight. What really drove that decision to embrace hybrid work? Well, first, let's start with our definition of hybrid. I think that helps ground where we are. We think of hybrid not just about the place. It's often you know, a focus when we talk about hybrid to where will someone work. Instead, we kind of zoom out a little bit and think about hybrid being about flexibility, flexibility and how, when, and where you work. Those three components are really important to us. Now, we haven't at Microsoft suspended going back to the office uh, indefinitely. We actually want to get back into the office. But when we do, we have a new policy, which is that um, with, without having to talk to your manager, you can work from outside of the office, most likely from home, up to 50% of the time. This fall, we had hoped that we would be able to implement that new policy, move out of entirely remote work and get our people back into the office that other 50% of the time. But as you indicated, the Delta variant kind of upended our plans as it did many other people. And so what we decided to do was not declare a new date for when we would go to this truly hybrid format, but instead to just be guided by the data. And we've set up a number of factors that we're watching now. And when the data lets us feel comfortable with moving to that new chapter, that truly um, hybrid chapter, we're going to do that. We told our employees that we would give 30 days notice. So we'd give them a heads up of 30 days. So we continue to watch those indicators very carefully. And then as we move back, we'll move into that flexible period where you can work, work from home up to 50% of the time. Wow. And is this really driven by what employees want? Were they really telling you and your current employees and, and some of the ones you're trying to recruit that they want this kind of a model, this flexibility? You know, in the intro, uh, that little video showed uh, something that we call the hybrid paradox. And earlier this year, we did a work trends index study. So a broad study across 31 countries, over 30,000 people to try and gauge both employer and employee sentiment. And this hybrid paradox was based on two data points. One was 73% of people said that they hope, in fact, uh, they were going to tune their professional lives to employers that would allow them to continue to have flexibility, the flexibility they've enjoyed during the pandemic, post pandemic. So 73%. At the same time, same base of people we surveyed, 67% of people said, well, but I do want more in-person collaboration. So unlike sometimes I see it painted in the media, it isn't an either or. Employees are driving it to get to the heart of your question, but it's not like they're saying, hey, I just want to work from home. They're saying, I like 
the trade-off between those two things. I want to be able to have the flexibility of working from home. I also want to be able to get in and see my colleagues. I recognize that's valuable. So yes, we are, we are definitely driven by employees. Certainly the labor market has changed a lot. I hope we get a chance to talk about that. Um, but we are trying to make sure that we are keeping up with the evolved, um, I, I would say kind of expectations of employees now. Yeah, they want the best of both worlds, it seems like. Uh, can I just ask, practically speaking, do you, will all the employees still have desks uh, or can they work remotely? Are they still supposed to live within a certain number of hours of, of the office where they're supposed to work? What are some of those practical considerations? You know, like everyone, we are trying to work those things out right now. And what we have decided to do, the definitive thing we've decided to do is not to have a company-wide approach to all of that, but to push that decision-making authority lower in the organization, as low as we feel like it's not only practically possible, but it would make sense. That typically ends up being to kind of uh, corporate vice president level so they can decide for their various groups is kind of what it looks like right now. And every group is taking a little bit different approach just simply because of the work that they do. In some cases, we're really gravitating towards this idea of kind of open space with neighborhood-based seating where you would have a seat allocated to you and you'd come back to that same seat. In other places, I know groups are starting to experiment with the idea that uh, you would essentially sign up for a seat. So it'd be kind of hot desking or hoteling and you'd sign up as you would go in. We're also looking at ways to coordinate, you know, who goes in during what times. We don't mandate like some companies out there that you must be in Mondays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. We actually allow you to, to um, take that 50% and spread it out however you'd like to. So just like everybody else, we are learning. We don't have all the answers, but we're trying to do our best to kind of take the data, look at the signals and project forward. Mm. And what about, obviously, a big part of your job is thinking not just what Microsoft is doing, but what other companies across the economy are going to do and how Microsoft can help meet those needs. Uh, you know, do you really see a huge embracing of this hybrid model uh, across white collar industries? Like, do you think many companies are going to end up somewhere around this 50-50 balance? Maybe it's a 60-40 or something else, but sort of somewhere in that realm. You know, that's my sense um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, if this had been a blip where maybe we went four weeks, six weeks, a quarter with remote work, I think it would be fairly easy to pull us back to what would have been our, you know, 2019 and earlier patterns. But at this point, you know, we're going on two years with workers really having enjoyed this flexibility and learned to live with and make use of the flexibility. So that's point number one. Point number two that we're seeing is that certainly the, the economic underpinnings of what makes a labor market go have changed in really significant ways. Again, in the in the intro, you alluded to this idea that not only have people started to adapt to flexibility, why they work, like literally why they work and how work fits into their lives has been a subject of, of deep contemplation we're finding in our research uh, just all across the world. And so that's changing the labor market. And then finally, as the labor market right now, at least is a job seekers market, we see a lot of competition for talent and that competition for talent, you know, depending on the industry, is already starting to heat up in really significant ways. It just takes one or two companies in an industry to really embrace this flexibility we talked about. And then all of a sudden, many other companies feel compelled to do so simply because employees see it as a part of the overall benefits package. So you start to put these things together, these factors together, and you get a, a really interesting cocktail that none of us can predict. We're just watching it play out and trying to do our best to adapt to it. I'm glad you brought up this deep questioning of why we work. I've been calling it the great reassessment of work in America, although you're right, it's worldwide. 
Uh, obviously, we're in the midst of this year. People are calling the great resignation. Over 30 million Americans have quit a job through August. Uh, obviously, it's impacted Microsoft in different ways as well. Uh, what's your takeaway from this great resignation trend of workers uh, being ready and willing to quit? Well, let me give some context that I think as I try to piece together the signals I'm seeing that at least have helped me understand it. In so many ways, what we saw pre-pandemic was workers, if we start with what we call information workers, almost on a treadmill. You know, some people would describe their jobs pre-pandemic because of the use of technology as kind of being on a treadmill where they didn't control the incline or the speed. And they felt like every year that treadmill was getting steeper and faster. The pandemic gave people this opportunity to just reassess and to think, man, is that where I want to go? Even more than that, though, the pandemic actually sped up. It accelerated digital trends, how the digitization of work was taking over kind of the overall pattern of work. And in so many ways, and, and I hope we get to this, it drove a lot of digital exhaustion. In other words, people were literally just exhausted with their work. We had a data point coming out of that same study that said 39% of workers, so almost 40% of workers worldwide classified themselves as totally exhausted at work during the midst of the pandemic. So a lot was happening with how people were feeling about work. At the same time, they were facing some really important life questions. They watched something play out across the world that certainly had really significant ramifications. And we've seen you know, people get sick and we've seen people die. And I think that has people reassess, you know, what am I doing with my time here on earth? So you, you put all those things together and it led to a couple of signals for us that really pointed the way. Number one, 41% of people in our survey said that they were planning on leaving their current employer within the next 12 months. That was much higher than anything we could find as a comparable. Number two, we actually found 46% of people saying that they planned on moving house. They were going to geographically move as a result of the pandemic. That indicated that there was really something deep going on in their assessment of how they even thought about geography and who they lived by and where they lived. So my biggest assessment is, gosh, I didn't think about this going into the pandemic, but the, the experience we've had, the shared experience we've had has been just as impactful on work, worker psyche as any of the very big events that we that we learned about, you know, as kids that happened in the 20th century, the Great Depression, the two world wars. I didn't think about that two years ago. That's not the way I thought about the event that we were going to all experience together. I tell people now, employers now, as I talk with my customers, hey, the people coming back to work, you know, physically back into the office, they're just not the same people that left you, you know, 20, 24 months ago. They have changed in significant ways. You really need to think about that. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up burnout. Uh, you know, we see it in the news industry too, almost every industry facing this. Uh, has technology only increased this burnout? You know, there's this feeling when you're working from home that you can just never turn it off. You know, the laptop sitting right there on the dining room table or, or in that room, you know, luring at you. Uh, you know, there's obviously so many benefits of technology, but, you know, is, is it really destroying the notion of a work-life balance? You know, technology giveth and technology taketh away, I would say, you know, so there are puts and takes in all of this. And I think you have to learn to be really wise. We definitely have seen technology accelerate this sense of digital exhaustion. I, I quoted, you know, that 39%, 54% of workers said that they felt overworked just in general. Um, we saw that there really is such a thing as video conferencing fatigue. We strapped these EEGs on top of people's heads. We had them attend normal in-person in physical meetings and compare that to meetings that were online. Sure enough, 
the brain waves, the beta brain waves indicated there was much more stress as you went from back to back meetings than physical meetings. So there's a lot going on for sure. But even though there are things that we have lost, there are definitely things that, that we have gained. Technology has allowed us to see more into things like collaboration patterns and networks and who's connecting with whom. It's also been able to give us some solutions to the burnout that we see. One of the most innovative things that the team here at Microsoft put together that is gaining steam as people adopt it organically is what we call a virtual commute of all things. Who knew we wanted our commute back? But it turns out the commute not only played kind of a get you from here to there, point A, point B, physically type of role. It also mentally, emotionally helped us get in the game and ramp up. And this virtual commute helps you do the same thing, kind of ramp up and ramp down out of your workday. So there are many different ways that we can use technology, I think, um, to combat you know, some of the, the new challenges that we have. On balance, on net, you know, I'm an optimist, I'm, I lean technology. Uh, on balance, I think as we learn to use the tools, the technology and this new way of working will be net beneficial for employers and employees if we are really deliberate, if we are thoughtful, if we share what we know together. Um, if we don't do that, you know, if we just let it play out, then I definitely think that there are dangers ahead. Wow, a virtual commute. I would not have guessed that that is what you would have found, <laughs> that people want some sort of virtual commute. Fascinating. I'm wondering if you can share some other insights that you all have gleaned as you've seen how people have used Microsoft Teams and some of these other tools to enhance uh, virtual experience and, and remote work and collaboration. And I, I'm curious if you're starting to see you know, is there sort of virtual conferencing fatigue? Are you starting to see that decline? Kind of what, where, where are we at now in this moment? Um, Talk about what we saw in the midst of the pandemic and then where we are right now, because the, the patterns are shifting, you know, all the time right now. A year into the pandemic, we saw that time in meetings, so video conferencing meetings had increased by 150% versus time that people spent prior to the pandemic, not a really big surprise. That was also translating, particularly because people were using their commute time to do work into a longer workday span during that time. On average across the world, we found that the, the time from when you started work to when you finished work increased just all across the globe by about 10%. In some countries, it was up as much as two hours. So there definitely was additional work that was happening. We also see that although that has now started to level off, which we're really happy about, it grew and grew and grew. Now it's kind of started to level off as a trend that people are doing more work in what we would call kind of after hour settings. So there's kind of six to 10% more work happening after hours, after 6 p.m. Uh, now than there was pre-pandemic. So lots going on in terms of patterns for people and how those patterns are changing. Um, what I seem to observe was during the, the height of the pandemic, when we really were all remote, what we were facing is what I call the shapeless workday. We just didn't know, you know, when did this thing start? When did it end? You know, what else would we have to do with ourselves? And so that was a really big challenge. Now, as we are starting to kind of get used to the idea that we're moving into a hybrid uh, work world where it will be about flexibility, some people are starting to go back into a physical office depending on where you are in the world, we are seeing new patterns emerge and we are seeing new ways to do things. From our perspective, you know, again, I have a, a bias for Microsoft. We have a product that we call Microsoft Teams. It brings together a lot of different communication modalities. So video conferencing, chat, um, work that you can do with phone, including collaboration, you know, all into one platform. As we watch people use that, so in aggregate, we can look at the telemetry. What we see is now we're starting to see video conferencing go down in the markets, in the areas where people are going back into the physical office. But use of chat, what we call asynchronous collaboration, has started to go way up. 
And so we start to see kind of this balance between the, the different types of technologies. And we think that is largely because people are not always together at the same time. Uh, and they're learning that a video conference isn't isn't needed to get all work done. You can start to shift work to different types of modalities. And then on top of that, what I'd say, Heather, that is totally fascinating for me is once you even start to use something like Teams, you find that even that is not enough because it's very transactional. It's very focused on, you know, get the deliverable done, finish up the article, you know, do the project. But on top of that, we're finding that you need something that actually is focused on social cohesion, on the social mm -hmm. fabric, mm -hmm. on connections between people. And so we've done some really interesting work there with a, a, a new product that we call Viva as well. So lots that we're learning as we try and kind of analyze what's going on and then introduce products that are focused on some of the challenges ahead. Yeah, that's fascinating that it's sort of migrating to these chat functions right now. I guess project this forward for me, uh, where you kind of see this going. We see a lot of tech companies reintroducing virtual reality, or you can create an avatar to represent you in a meeting. You know, but realistically, where, where do you see kind of the next few years evolving as these hybrid work models uh, become more prominent in the workplace? You know, if I if I just kind of get brass tacks and say what is really happening, you know, we can the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So as I go out and talk with people on different continents, I'm starting to be able to piece together a picture. I would say that there are kind of three chapters. The chapters are not serial. They're happening in overlapping ways, but they kind of go like this. Chapter one is about getting people to start to get back into a physical office with a new pattern of work. Here, the focus has been on, you know, there aren't many changes, frankly, to the physical environment you can make. Real estate takes time to change. It, it is not a super malleable resource for us. And here, what we're learning is that there are kind of cultural and work patterns that are developing, not really policies, but, but patterns. Some, a simple example for me would be, we are learning to how to have hybrid meetings where some people are in a conference room and other people are remote. Something as simple as having everybody join the meeting and flip on their video, but the people in the room turn off sound. Already that's making a big difference. It's a new practice we didn't have pre-pandemic. So chapter one is about like, deal with what you've got, learn new kind of cultural uh, ways of doing things, new processes, new patterns. Chapter two for me is the beginning of us starting to think about changes to the physical space. Here, we definitely are starting to see movement that indicates um, that companies and bosses all, the, all around the world are going to make changes. An earlier survey indicated 66%, uh, so a full two-thirds of companies around the world were planning on making changes to their physical space based on what they think will play out with hybrid. That will be more meeting space. It will be a, a change in configuration to kind of how the office actually looks to to accommodate this idea that there are two offices now, one in your house and one that is kind of rented out by the company. And that's that will be chapter two. Some really interesting things to work out there. And then chapter three, as you indicated, is really actually kind of digital spaces being merged together with physical spaces and projecting presence through things like holograms and the metaverse. I know this sounds very sci-fi, uh, but just yesterday we introduced um, avatars into, into um, Teams. So you'll be able to start to use avatars in, in Teams as well as immersive spaces. This is coming soon you know, to a meeting near you. Some of the research that we've done indicates that as people start to use this, it actually has a com positively compounding effect. We found that in our what we call our human factors lab, people who were attended a meeting where an avatar was used as opposed to a camera, they were much more likely to actually try and use an avatar themselves next. So I, I think a lot of people think, I'm not so sure. The data and the research we've done seems to indicate that it will have a little bit of a, an effect that will spread out over time. So we'll watch it, but that would be chapter three as you start to see some of those more science, science fiction type technologies integrated into the experience.
Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, it'll be fascinating to see if people stay more engaged if there's avatars versus uh, versus the cameras. Um, I want to ask you as well about Generation Z. You know, there's been a lot of chatter lately across different industries, how different this generation of 20-somethings coming into the workplace, they have different needs, different wants, they are demanding different things from employers, uh, particularly around uh, mental health, you know, very much aware of well-being, mental health, and also wanting to really feel a sense of purpose, that they really believe in what the company is doing and it aligns with their values. And I'm wondering how you feel that uh, Microsoft and, and other companies need to evolve to really address the needs of, of this new generation that will play such a big role in work going forward. Well, as I indicated, I'm an optimist. I think with Gen Z, we have our future right here in front of us, you know, and I think the best thing we can ever do is, is understand what they have to offer us, uh, really walk a mile in their shoes and do our very best to integrate the best of what we have to offer in older generations together with what they're bringing as a rising generation. The pandemic was tough for Gen Z. Um, just to give you a data point that really struck me in our survey, we found that when we asked people with decision-making authority how they were doing, 61% of them said they were thriving at the height of the pandemic. So in other words, this setup is okay and it's actually worked out pretty well for me. As we looked at the Gen Z population, asked them the same question, 60% of them said that they were barely surviving. Uh, so they were having a very different experience during the pandemic. We went and looked at why would that be the case? You know, and we found, of course, unsurprisingly, Gen Z was early in career. They were just, they didn't have the same network set up. They didn't really know how work worked. They were much more likely to be living on their own and not actually even seeing people again at the height of the remote boom. So there was a lot going on. As they move into the workforce, you know, they have taken not only those experiences during the pandemic, but also their desire, as you indicated, to, you know, be valuable and do valuable things in the world and also to be very thoughtful about their own mental health. And they are absolutely pushing those into the workplace. And what we at Microsoft think is a really good thing. So we believe that technology should help them. They're very adept with technology. Uh, we think that there are many technology um, innovations that can be used to help out. So we've got some in this, this Viva product I talked about before. We have something called Insights that allows you to kind of really focus on a team's well-being. So this is where you can track a team's burnout. You can track their workload. You can track how they're doing in terms of connecting with other people. You can track whether or not they're getting the right time with their manager. So there are many things that we think that we can kind of essentially ride the coattails of Gen Z into corporations, into organizations to help them out. But net net, I would just say, you know, Gen Z is the future. We welcome them into the workforce with open arms. The rising generation always has awesome things to offer, and we hope that technology can help amplify that. Jared, it has been so fascinating talking with you. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to having a conversation in the future, perhaps with the, both of us on Avatar. Sounds great, Heather. Thank you so much for the time. Stay with us. After a short break, we'll be back with White House Council of Economic Advisors member Heather Boucher. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Elise Labatt, and today we're talking about how technology is helping to provide flexibility in the workplace. As the future of work paradigm continues to shift during COVID, employers need to adapt to this changing landscape to attract and retain critical talent, as well as help manage employee burnout. To talk about how technology can help, 
I'm joined by Stephanie Halford. She's vice president and general manager of business client platforms at Intel. Stephanie, great to have you. Thanks, Elise. Happy to be here. Well, we know that the tech industry was was much more able to adapt to work from home than some other sectors. And at Intel, you must have a unique perspective because you're not only an employer, but you're also a manufacturer of the technology that helps support work from home. So tell us what you found during this period. Yeah, I mean, obviously none of us predicted the pandemic. And I was pretty impressed with how our IT departments managed to set up remote labs for to keep our fabs up and running. Uh, silicon chips were a priority in trade uh, as the pandemic hit, and we were able to keep that business continuity moving. And in the process, we, we learned quite a bit that we you know, fed on to many of our customers. One was that connectivity was so important, and we have spent a lot of investment both in our office and home uh, environments and our clients in building in more Wi-Fi connectivity because we think that's incredibly important no matter where you are. The other area I think that is so key is allowing IT, the technology to reach their PCs when they're at home. There's nothing more frightening than thinking your IP assets are going out the door because somebody is connected in a way that can provide vulnerability. And we have focused quite a bit of that with our, our vPro platform, which is uh, our highest level of security in our client space. Yeah, I mean, with so many challenges facing business right now, um, it's obvious Intel was you know ready for this because you're a technology company and you have this updated technology. But I think a lot of companies don't have that, you know, they have up outdated technology. So why should updating that technology be a priority, do you think? Yeah, I think it's security, security, security. Um, I think the second one is, is employee experience, which is becoming more and more important uh, to businesses. You know, the business continuity, productivity and, you know, protection is essential. But we're finding that employee experience and frustration levels and expectations for a smooth experience are higher than ever, no matter whether you're in hybrid, full remote, or, or even back at the office, as many of our international sites are. Uh, so that employee experience is important, and we've been investing quite a bit in, as we plan our products, ensuring that the we test them in real-world conditions, not some synthetic benchmark, but in fact, an environment like this, where I'm speaking on um, a video collaboration experience, I've got a few different, um, you know, uh, windows open and uh, I've probably got, you know, lighting and, and, and audio in different areas too. And all of that is expected to just work seamlessly. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I've been reading as well that, you know, this autonomy and this hybrid work availability is going to be really important for employees. So what is that key takeaway for you for employers as we look forward to the future of work and return to the office because you're dealing with a technology issue and you're also dealing with an employee issue. Yeah, I think for us, we've done a lot of listening. Um, we've had multiple uh, engagement with, uh, we have about 110,000 people all over the world. And so the range of either emotional, physical, or you know, just work styles is, is vast. And what we've come to believe is over 80, 90% want to be hybrid. But when they are back in the office, they don't want to be doing the same thing we're doing 10 hours a day, you know, on Zoom and Skype and Teams calls. They want to use that office time for connection, whiteboarding, 
uh, coffee conversations, and they want the same people in the room as much as possible at the same time so that there's not a discrimination between those on the bridge and those in the room. So it's a matter of having the right kind of work suited to that hybrid environment. Uh, it's amazing how you know COVID has really reimagined the workplace. And as we navigate this return to the office, it's pretty clear employees uh, really want that flexibility and technology is gonna be key to offering these options to keep them more satisfied and more productive. Stephanie Halford, Vice President and General Manager of Business Client Platforms at Intel. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, enjoyed it. Good to talk to you, Elise. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to our discussion on the future of work. I'm Heather Long from the Washington Post, and I'm very excited to be joined now by Heather Boucher from the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Welcome to Post Live, Heather. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here with you today, Heather. Uh, you know this is my favorite topic, the labor market. I have so many questions for you. But uh, first, I really want to ask you about those election results last night. Obviously, Republicans did win big in Virginia with the governorship and some other key races. But you know, I think what's what I really wanted to ask you is a lot of those exit polls showed voter frustration with the economy, especially inflation, those rising prices. What do you take away from this frustration about the economy that we were seeing in those results yesterday? Well, I take a few things from it. So first off, um, you know, we have seen so much progress over the past year, year and a half. Um, you know, certainly since um, the president took office, we've added um, over 600,000 jobs per month every month on average. So that's an incredible, um, you know, good news, good news for the labor market. Unemployment is now back down below 5%. But we definitely do hear that people are frustrated. And you know, we have seen um, this, this inflation, which we continue to believe will be transitory. We believe that it is because we are trying to recover from this historic pandemic. We're trying to get um, you know, that economy back on track. And there's been bumps along the way. But you know, I think what I take from the, the poll results from yesterday, but also over the past few months, is that um, you know, people understand how the economy affects them and their day-to-day -day lives. And the president is getting up each and every day and doing everything he can to make sure that supply chains are working, to make sure that we are building back better. And I also, um, I was pausing yesterday to remember where we were a year ago. And, you know, I, I was Googling a little bit and reminding myself how a year ago, you know, there were mile-long lines um, for um, food banks across the country. There was a lot of worry about supply chains even then, as people worried about the price of turkeys, um, you know, leading up to Thanksgiving of 2020. So we've been here for a long time, but we are in a much better situation than we were. And I'll just end by noting that it continues to be the case that, you know, getting that vaccine out there, getting COVID under control is the key to getting on that path to the kind of fast recovery that Americans want to see. And in fact, um, earlier, a few weeks ago, there was a survey of economists on this question around um, the vaccines, and all of the economists surveyed 100%, and you never get that, but they all agreed that getting the vaccine, making sure that we're making workplaces and places of business safe for Americans was a top priority for the economy. So I think we just need to keep focused on that. 
You mentioned the Build Back Better agenda, obviously a big week for that agenda as Congress closes in on a deal on both the care economy side and the infrastructure bill. Uh, can I just ask what you think the election results yesterday do for the Build Back Better agenda? Is there more urgency to pass this or, or do you see some of that election result as maybe some pushback against so much uh, new spending and new programs? Well, I think there is enormous urgency to this legislation. You know, the president has been clear from day one that inaction is not an option. Um, his second, you know, bottom line is that we're not going to raise taxes on people making less than $400,000 a year. But I do think that, you know, it's exciting to see Congress on the cusp of acting. And I do hope that we see the House act this week. This legislative package is so important to the American people, to American workers, and to the American economy. Um, I spent a lot of the weekend digging into the details of um, the, the Build Back Better Act that's in front of the House this week. And, you know, when you dig in and you really see just how important this is going to be for um, the kinds of innovation we need to see to create those thriving businesses and good jobs as we move towards a zero carbon economy or all the things that I know, Heather, we've talked about over the years around the care economy, these historic investments in childcare and universal pre-K in um, you know, making sure that people have access to home health care. These are all things that are about the day in, day out bread and butter issues facing American families and American workers. And here, you know, economists really do agree that if we make these investments, they will boost US productivity and that will help contain costs over the long term going to help families deal with their costs in the here and now, but also through the effects on the economy overall will be good for that long-term path. So, um, so what I see is a lot of, I'm, I'm walking around with a lot of hope and optimism that we will finally take this over the finish line. Hmm. I wanted to specifically ask you about the paid parental leave. I know you have been beating the drum in Washington, D.C. for years on this. Obviously, the United States, one of the few countries in the world without paid parental leave. Um, we just learned a few minutes ago that the House may put a version back in. Obviously, still a few holdouts in the Senate. I'm curious, have you been on the phone with Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia? Or are you trying to, to make this happen? Well, this is such an important issue, and certainly I was excited during the campaign and then during this administration that the president has seen this as such a core priority. He has made this um, a, a top issue for him all along. But, you know, there are challenges when it comes to getting things uh, through a legislative body, and you have to make compromises. And again, you know, for the president, inaction is just simply not an option. There's too much good in this bill. And so, you know, I'm excited that people are raising up their voices and saying how important this, this policy is to them, to their families, to our economy. But I really do hope that we can get this whole package passed. And if this isn't in it, the president has said repeatedly that he will continue to fight for this policy and he will continue to work on it. So, um, you know, I think that eventually we're going to get this for America. Um, and also, I'll take this moment to remind all of the viewers of this segment that, you know, there are nine states that have actually made progress on this policy. So a little over a quarter of Americans live in a place where they do have access to paid leave. And we need to make that true for all Americans, um, you know, either now or sometime in the future if it doesn't make it into this package. Mm. You know, one of the arguments that you've made for to me a lot in the past year is that part of Build Back Better is really a push to increase participation of Americans and in working outside the home, particularly women. 
do, do you still think that labor force participation of women would go up even if paid per, parental leave is not in the bill? That is that is such a great question and one that I've actually done a lot of work on. Um, now, I do think that paid leave is important, but you know, here's the thing. In the legislation, there is significant historic investment in, in the other kinds of care supports that families need, I mean, access to quality, affordable childcare, um, moving us along the path towards universal pre-kindergarten for three and four-year-olds, which will help, um, it'll help kids, but it also will help those families that, that have to work. And importantly, an expansion of the resources available for home and community-based services that allow folks who are aging or disabled to stay in their homes and have some, some help and some care so their adult children and their adult caregivers can also participate in the labor force. So these are all absolutely critical pieces of the care infrastructure that our nation needs. And so these investments are gonna make that quality care more affordable, more accessible. And there's a really important piece in all three of those policies, there is um, a commitment to improving the wages and working conditions for those care workers. That's gonna go a long way towards making sure that we have that, that strong labor supply in the care sector so that the rest of America can get to work. And we know from a lot of empirical research that these policies will boost labor supply. They will help people who have care responsibilities fully participate in the economy. And really importantly, they help families deal with these really important costs and expenses um, that can be a real challenge. So for the child care policy capping um, the expenses at 7% of a family's income, that's going to go a long way for families and knowing that those child care workers are getting a, a fair day's pay. All right, one more on Build Back Better, and then I'm going to go to my long list on the labor market. <laughs> uh, so the last one I wanted to run by you. You know, you have been a leader in D.C. for years before you came to the White House running an organization on inequality, you know, equitable growth. Um, obviously, in the last few days here, we have seen this push to include the SALT um, repeal. So that's the state and local tax uh, deduction, which is currently capped at $10,000. The idea would be to waive that maybe for a few years. Um, as you and I know, that mostly benefits the wealthiest Americans who have those expensive homes. Uh, you know, I, I just, I'm wondering how you square this with the goals to make a more equitable economy, to do something like this that so benefits the top 1%. Uh, you know, is is the White House supportive of this, including the SALT repeal? It's again, you are, that is another really good question, what I've been thinking a lot about. So here's the thing, you know, when the president laid out his agenda, he laid out a fulsome set of revenue raisers that were focused on the very top of the income distribution. And, um, you know, the, he laid out a plan to fully pay for the Build Back Better agenda and to make sure that we did that by not raising taxes on people making less than $400,000 a year. Some of my favorite pieces of the president's agenda include making sure that we just literally enforce the laws on the books for those at the top. Um, for too long, we've been starving the IRS of the resources that they need to be able to effectively ensure that the wealthiest among us actually pay the taxes that they already owe. Now, here's the thing. As with all the pieces of the Build Back Better agenda, it's got to make it through Congress. Um, and there's a lot of folks over there that have a lot of different views on a lot of different pieces. Um, I hope at the end of the day that the revenue raisers that we focus on will be focused on raising revenue from those who have gained the most from our economy, who can most afford to pay, that we reward work 
and not wealth. Um, and that is the vision that the president is articulating. But again, inaction is not an option, and we do need to make sure that we that this gets across the finish line. But really importantly, um, you know, one of the most uh, distortive aspects of our tax code is, is 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 not enforcing the laws on the books. So I do think we need to be focused there. All right. So it sounds like you're saying if, if salt is what it takes to get it across the finish line, then it would be okay. I think that you know this is all this is all sort of a moving target at this moment. So I'm not going to negotiate any particular piece um, with you here right now. But I do think that you know we are focused on making sure that this is well paid, that this is paid for, and that the policy will be effective at reaching the president's goals. And the president has been very clear that his goals are about strengthening and building America's middle class, and um, you know making sure that we reward work and not wealth. Um, so switching gears, really focusing on the job market. I know you spend a lot of time, like me, thinking about it. Uh, obviously, some disappointing job gains in August and September. You know, a lot of people think that's COVID and other issues. But I'm curious, we've got another, the October jobs report will be out on Friday. Um, it was 194,000 jobs added in September. You know, what, are you, what kind of numbers are you thinking could be for October? Will, will we be higher than that, you think? Well, I do hope that we continue to create jobs on the path that we've been on. So um, we've been creating jobs to the tune of about 600,000 a month since the president took office. So, and, and importantly, since we put in place the American Rescue Plan. So hopefully we will get something um, that, that keeps us on that path. But here's the thing, right? We know that Delta was, um, you know, took a bite out of the economy over the course of the summer, early fall. Um, caseloads were up that affected economic activity, affected labor supply. And um, but we've seen that start to fade. So I think that there's there's definitely room for optimism. Um, we've also been seeing in recent weeks um, the number of people who are newly applying for unemployment benefits has been falling. Hopefully that is a good indicator that people are getting jobs and we will see that show up in the numbers that were released on Friday. We did get some numbers today, these the, um, some numbers that might indicate that that we're going to see something um, you know, larger on Friday. Um, you know, and that's that's certainly what the consensus forecast is, which I believe is around four to five hundred thousand jobs will be added. But here's the thing. Um, you know, we have seen these steady job gains month after month. We've always known that recovering from a historic pandemic wasn't going to be easy. We put the economy on ice, but it's it's a little bit trickier to thaw it all out. Um, and we know that there's that there's going to be bumps along the way. So I am optimistic that we will see continued recovery. Um, but I, I I can't tell you yet exactly what that's going to look like. I guess how soon do you think we could be back at full employment? And I know full employment can be a little fuzzy. What exactly is that? But you know, let's just say maybe regain all those five million jobs that that we're still trying to get back. Uh, that were lost during the pandemic. Do you think we'll get well, there next year? I definitely, I mean, if, well, so here's the thing. I was about to say I definitely think so, but I'm going to caveat that because, again, it all hinges on whether or not we have a new variant of the virus or something changes, right? So given the caveats of the things that are not as controllable, I think we are certainly on that path. And if we think about again where we were a year ago, where forecasters um, expected us to be today, we are in way better shape than people expected. Um, so the unemployment rate is much lower. We've seen um, you know improvements in growth that people didn't expect um, because of the steps 
Um, I think in large part because of the steps we've taken to contain the virus and to make sure that businesses and families could make it through this crisis uh, more intact than not. Um, but I do think that is, you know, looking forward, um, we've got to get all those folks back to work, everybody who wants a job back into the labor force, back at those jobs. That is going to require that workplaces are safe, um, that people feel confident, both you know, engaging in economic activity and you know, doing their jobs. And I think we've made a lot of progress there. Certainly, um, getting those vaccine out, vaccines out there helps a lot. Um, but you know, uh, I mean, the other thing I will just add uh, before I hand the baton back to you is that you know, in your question, I think a lot about the kind of charts that we do that show the recovery from various recessions. And the recovery from the pandemic recession has been much steeper, right, in terms of the pace of, of job gains and how fast they've come back. And I think that is actually a quite remarkable achievement. And it is because we acted so quickly and we made sure that as we had to put the economy in ice, we, we gave ourselves the tools to pull it back. Now, granted, it hasn't all been smooth sailing, but certainly we are in a pretty good place. And I think that that, that, that indicates um, that we're on a good path moving forward. One last fact I'll add is that we have seen record high um, uh, investment in capital expenditures, which is a signal that out there businesses are seeing opportunity to invest and they're investing in things that are going to improve productivity. That's all good for the economy. And then again, we need to pass this bill back better. That's really going to be good for the economy. So the other one I wanted to bring up is uh, obviously this great resignation trend that is going on, over 30 million workers quitting between January and August. Looks like it'll be a record pace if it holds through the end of the year. Just we've never seen anything like this before. Uh, you know, what are you really taking away from what is going on here? Why people are so aggressively quitting and the message that they're trying to send right now? Oh, the great resignation. I feel like I want to sigh every time I hear that phrase. Um, you know, so many people um, are quitting. And, you know, as an economist, what, what that means is that people feel that they either have other opportunities or they don't need that job. But there's something going on that, that's saying, hey, I, I, can, I can take a different step. Um, I think a lot of what we've been seeing, of course, is that there's been you know, some increases in wages in a variety of low-wage jobs as employers are trying to hire enough people. And that's created opportunity for workers who say, well, you know, this job may not be as good as I want, but there are these other opportunities over here. Um, and some of that may not just be about wages. It may be about working conditions or do people feel safe on the job or, um, you know, a variety of other reasons. So I think, you know, that is, that's a good indicator for, you know, how the labor market is functioning. But, you know, I worry a little bit about, um, you know, uh, how long this will last. I worry a little bit about, you know, whether or not we can sort of, you know, pull people back into the labor force as we're trying to recover. But um, I think it's really good to see the kinds of wage gains that we've seen. It'll be good when we can get those above inflation um, month after month after month. But I think, you know, we're really hoping that we can see the kinds of, um, uh, we can see this, that so what this means in the short term, is that workers feel that they have power. Well, can that last over the long term? And can we make sure that workers can, um, you know, feel like they have that, that good job where they feel safe and they feel like they have those economic opportunities? And I guess, do you think it will last? I mean, I, I sort of think about 
um, a lot of businesses, and I'm sure they call you and talk to you too, you know, sort of see what's going on and they say, okay, we've raised some pay, we've tried to change a few things, but you know, the unemployment benefits have been scaled back, the stimulus money is fading. So they sort of feel like 2022, the table's gonna change and workers are gonna be more desperate to come back to work and that they won't have to make as many concessions anymore. And I'm wondering, do you think that worker bargaining power that we see now, is there anything that makes you think it will last into 2022? Well, here's the thing. Worker bargaining power is about a lot of things. First and foremost, it's about, you know, is there a tight labor market? Can we get close to that full employment? Whatever exactly that number is, as, as we've already talked about. So that's really important. But it's also about making sure that we have the policies in place that give workers that economic security. And honestly, that is why we've been fighting so hard for the Build Back Better agenda. Knowing that, you know, if you are a care worker, that you're going to have a good job. Knowing that, you know, you have um, access to, um, to care if you need it. Knowing that, you know, we are making the investments we need to make so that we have that kind of the, the innovation and the vitality in the industries that are going to replace fossil fuels as we move to this net zero carbon economy. All of these pieces. Um, and I mean, you know, just sort of also the huge infrastructure investments that we want to make across the economy. All of these are investments in communities and businesses and workers that are going to help create that economic security and hopefully lead to that full employment that can help sustain that worker power moving forward. At the same time, we need to make sure that we're enforcing the laws on the books um, in terms of labor law, and that we continue to fight for things like the PRO Act that make it easier for workers to organize and, and bargain collectively. All of these pieces together create that, um, that worker power that um, has been elusive for workers for a long time, um, but we need to make sure that this is grounded in the structures of the economy, not just, um, not just this sort of quick great resignation, but getting people into those high quality jobs that Americans deserve. Heather Boucher from the Council of Economic Advisors, thank you for joining us from the White House today. Thank you, Heather. It's been a real treat to talk to you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.